Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by three very special guests, Dr. Igor Malinsky, Dr. Les Woodcock, and Dr. Peter Stalinga. And I actually think you three gentlemen are professors, am I, am I correct? You're all teaching at a university at the moment? Yeah. Yep. So before we get started, um, could I just get each one of you just to quickly introduce yourselves, maybe just for one, one minute, just to let the audience know who you are and what your experience is and what you're currently working on? Well, who first? I will, I will start. Thank you. So I... Uh, Graduated Novosibirsk State University in '79. Uh, did a PhD in chemical physics, and since '93, I am teaching chemistry in Algarve University. Uh, we were publishing some climate research, which was out of the mainstream science, and. Uh, Recently, we got interested in the COVID topics. That's it. Very good. Thank you for that introduction. Um, Dr. Woodcock, what about yourself? Yeah. Um, my main contribution to the paper is actually the English, would you believe? It's my first language. <laughs> and I am... Professionally, I originally am a chemical engineer, but I do research in thermodynamics and chemical physics and phase transitions. Uh, uh, and now, I've, since I retired, I came to work at the University of Algarve in the physics department. And um, I, I tend to, we, it's a stage in life where you don't need, don't need career mileage, you don't need papers, you don't need the money. So it's nice to be able to do research on topical issues and even to collaborate with my two colleagues, both of who are experts in this area of biochemistry, about which I know actually very little, but I, I, do, I do understand the, the basic scientific method, the principles, and, uh, and that's how I try to contribute to these, uh, these controversial areas of research. And uh, I think between, between the three of us, we, uh, we complement one another and get, get to the right answer, eventually. Um, okay. <laughs> Any other questions? No, that's great. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Dr. Stalinga. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm uh, Peter Stalinga from uh, the University of Algarve here, of course. I got a PhD in physics in uh, the University of Amsterdam. And then uh, since 1999, I'm here in the Algarve. And uh, of course, we came uh, to study the topic of the climate, and we found out that this is actually uh, not being well told, and we have a lot of discussions. So we formed a group in uh, 2016, the Osama Philosophical Society, where uh, everybody that has an opinion that is not, has an ideas, scientific ideas that are not accepted generally by the public, those are accepted in... Um, in the Osama Philosophical Society, so we discussed this. We tried to find out where the common knowledge, where the negative of the uh, of the people out there, uh, where it is wrong. So this is basically what we're doing science. And then we got on the topic of uh, of uh, this COVID uh, business, and we also then to find out where is actually the narrative is wrong. So we come up with an, uh, an alternative hypothesis, 
And then my contribution was basically about, well, we will discuss this guess, I guess, also not so much about uh, medicine. I don't know anything about it, but about the, the, the basically the science, the hypothesis testing. So we have the hypothesis that is uh, what we call the runaway testing scenario. But I guess we will discuss this in, in a moment. So this is basically who I am. Great, thank you. So maybe a bit over a week ago, um, I came across a paper that was titled Role of Exosomes in False Positive COVID-19 PCR Tests. And I read that paper and I was extremely surprised by what I was reading because a lot of what you were talking about in that paper was um, I shared similar views and, and a similar perspective and it was very refreshing to see credentialed people who are working in the education system um, at a university level coming out and highlighting some of these things which are being spoken about but not receiving the attention that they deserve and almost being sort of relegated to pseudoscience. But I actually think what you're talking about in that paper is closer to the truth and, and closer to the real science than the mainstream wants us to believe. So what made you want to write that paper and publish it or, or try to get it published? Because you, you've had some problems getting it published, correct? No, it's, uh, I, think it, I think it's your turn, this was your, uh, your idea. Well, I think uh, the thing about exosomes, it appeared from an internet talk which Peter showed me like two years ago because I didn't know anything, like I didn't know they existed. But when I understood that they exist, I just uh, started thinking about it and understood that it actually can explain all the facts much better than the current uh, discourse in the media and the current official discourse. Why? Just going back to Peter, if uh, we think about what science is, science is about trying to disprove the hypothesis. So if they can explain something by their ideas, it doesn't mean that their ideas are true. In fact, the explanation could be completely different, only we don't know what it is. On the other hand, what science can do is to disprove the idea. Because if we see something which is not explained by our ideas, then we are sure that our ideas are incorrect. And that's when we can make some progress, because if we see that ideas are wrong, we have to think up of something different. Absolutely. And I think a lot of the ideas that are currently being discussed in the mainstream are incorrect. Um, and so one of those things that I think was really apparent to me in that paper that you spoke about was that they haven't isolated 
the virus away from all other genetic material. So I think you know that's an important point to touch on because I want to talk about the PCR tests a little bit later. But in order to develop an accurate test, the PCR test, you have to have the virus first. And and mention that they haven't proven that they were able to isolate it completely away from all other genetic material. You do you agree with? that sort of perspective? Am I understanding your point that you're trying to make? Well, yes, and uh, but any virologist will say you that it is what they do. They just put something in a cell culture and if the cells in that culture die, they say, okay, we have isolated the virus. This is what they do for isolation, okay? So the common notion of isolation is uh, different from the current practices, which started around uh, 1954, as I learned recently. And uh, if you ask me, I would uh, suspect that entire virusology is uh, nonsense. Because if you don't do control experiments, you cannot be sure of what your results are. Because those cells could be dying of antibiotics, which they also add. They could die of some other reasons. And whatever happens, all cells always produce exosomes. Because that's the way to communicate with the immune system until something is wrong. Of course, if they are in a culture, there is no body and no immune system, but they still do the same. If they are attacked by virus, they produce exosomes, and those exosomes in a live body would be acted upon by the rest of the body, which doesn't happen in the culture, but still they are there together with the virus. So what I was going to say, if... The other thing which could uh, make things very wrong is that when they try to build the genetic material, so by the procedure, they first cut it into small fragments and then sequence any of the fragments, all of them. Like in that paper published by the Chinese, they had a total of 10 million fragments each sequenced independently, and then they have to use that to build the genome, the complete RNA of a virus. So what do they do? What did they do in the particular case? They used the previously determined genome of SARS-CoV-1, and then they found something which was like 60 or 70 or 80% similar to SARS-CoV-1, and they called it SARS-CoV-2. So imagine they would have taken something else and not SARS-CoV-1. I would not guarantee they wouldn't come up with a completely different genome out of that mixture, because that mixture contains everything. It has the whole human genome, because it is the leftovers of some cells, and uh, who knows what could they get out of it. No one can tell. And 
if they don't tell that we tested this and this and this and this, different ways to find the genome based on different previous viruses, if they don't say they did it, probably they didn't do it. So they just took this because they thought it could be possible that it is something similar, and what they got was this. Thank you. Did anyone have anything to add there? But uh, I agree with you that with this uh, testing, that they haven't isolated a virus, so uh, they cannot know if their testing is correct. Because if you don't have a, a golden standard, you must have your, your test, and then on the side, you must have the reality, so that you know, you know what is real, and then you test if your test is then actually detected with reality. But they never had this. They have uh, imagined a, um, a virus. I actually uh, think that uh, the vir a virus or viruses in general, they exist, but uh, this is not identified. This one has never been identified, so you don't know what you're testing. There is no golden standard. The standard for testing is the test itself. So then, by definition, the test is 100% correct in all their uh, models and in all their uh, all their politics they are doing. Is that the test is infallible? It's correct, and this assumption is totally wrong because they never identified the virus, so they could never actually know if the test is correct. And then, if we start saying, well, if we assume that a certain percentage of the test is not correct, then we can explain the entire uh, pandemic. Then. Everything then is explained, so we formed uh, an alternative hypothesis saying that, well, let's assume that the test is not 100% correct. Then everything is explained and everything follows very nicely. You can, the entire two years, they follow very nice in, uh, in a hypothesis which explains everything. So that was uh, the contribution that I did in the, in the other paper. I don't know so much about uh, these viruses. This is more Igor's uh, work. But I can understand what uh, what this is all about. He tries to explain why the test doesn't work. I, uh, in the other part, is uh, was uh, using uh, if the test doesn't work, what would the implications be in, on our real life? That is my contribution. Anything to add, um, Dr. Woodcock? Did you have anything additional to add to what... Um no, except that I don't know if you saw that on, on research, we also submitted a letter to Nature. And that uh, this was about six months before the Lancet paper with the explanation. And the letter to Nature focused on the fallout effects. And even, even if the PCR tests were 100% <laughs> correct, the, the fallout effects, because this, this is what most people believe, the number of deaths, hospitalizations, and, uh, and actually infections uh, are actually true. Uh, if, 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 all the, or if, if it was 100% correct. And th th there's now a general consensus that even if that were the case, the, the fallout effects in terms of the damage to the economy, the damage to per, pe, people's health, income, suicides, alcoholism, all of the, there's an endless list of fallout effects that far outweigh the, uh, the, the, uh, the damage from the very small percentage of actual deaths 
that are actually caused by the COVID. And the actual average age of deaths by the COVID virus is around about between 79 and 81. And so there, with hindsight, even, even if the tests were true, with hindsight, there is no political justification for the lockdown uh, in countries all around the world. And it's become an industry. And the PCR test is an international industry. Uh, and the, the medical profession is basically riddled with pseudoscience experts who advise politicians. And we focused on this aspect in the letter to nature. And that, that was rejected in even faster time than the Lancet article. It took them less than 24 hours to reject it without sending it, without sending it to a, any reviewers. And it's actually on ResearchGate, and that's now attracted about maybe somewhere between two and 3,000, which is still quite high. It's still quite high for an average paper on ResearchGate. And we just just listed it as a letter to nature. It's still there. So even even without the scientific explanation that's provided by Eagle and my colleagues, which I don't fully understand, there is still a, a, there's still a very very strong case for publicising the fallout effects of the PCR testing, whether they're false positive or not. That's a. Uh, um, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And I think that point that you make there is very important because there are many doctors and many scientists who are putting forward alternative ideas, but they're not actually getting published. So a lot of people say, well, if there was any truth to what you say, to what you were saying, it would be published. Be yeah. this in the scientific literature. But just, you know, with an example of what's happened to, to you when you tried to publish this paper. In the Lancet, it was denied, wasn't it? So you can't even get no. this information out there into the published literature yeah. to begin with. Somehow, somehow. Yeah, so they obviously so weren't actually, happy. Actually, commenting on what Les has said, there were some uh, data published in one of the webcasts. Uh, basically, if you look at British statistics, there were on the total about 190,000 of people who died with COVID, meaning they died and that they had COVID diagnosed. Now, if you look only of, on those who died from COVID, meaning they didn't have any other pathologies which could lead to past demise, so those are only 17,000. And if you look at those 17,000, the average age was 82. So this shows how deadly the virus is. So if you are a healthy person and you are below 82 or like below 70, then probably you would not have any problems with COVID. That's, that's about it. Of course, uh, in practice, when there are lots of wrong diagnostics, we believe that most uh, flu cases 
have been diagnosed as COVID because, well, I can show, well, it is in the paper and I can show you more pictures. What you see is you have COVID all over the year. You have it in uh, rhinovirus season in autumn. You have it in winter. You have it in spring. You have it in summer where you don't have any flu at all. And then, uh, what do they want to say? Uh, if you diagnose flu A as COVID and put all people in the same hospital ward, they would cross-contaminate each other. And if you get two or more viruses at the same time, it is much worse than one virus at the time. And then you die much easier. Of course, there is a psychological pressure because apparently on the next day when they announced that pandemics has come, people started dying without any virus present anywhere. People just started dying. So if there were people in like, terminal conditions, the announcement killed them. Right. That was it. And when I read your paper, you mentioned that I just want to go back to that isolation thing to start with, because uh, just to carry on from what you were saying before. You mentioned that the virus hasn't been isolated from all other genetic material, but that was um, even admitted in the Corman-Drosten paper, the original paper that was used to come up with the primers for the PCR test. They said in that paper that we developed the PCR test in the absence of an isolated virus. So well, they, even admit. they were developing tests just based on that code which was published in the database, same as they did in Russia. They didn't have any samples. They were just using the code in the database to build the test, and that was it. So do you think they've ever had an isolated SARS-CoV-2 virus? Mm, don't think so. Okay. Like, what they're doing is to try to find something similar to the previous material. Of course, uh, all the errors of the method, they would be reproduced. Whatever wrong was done in the very first paper, it is reproduced in all other papers that identify the genetic material of the virus. Because they're trying to find something similar to what have already been discovered and published. And you were sort of shaking your head there, Dr. Stillinger. So you, you don't, or you also agree that there hasn't been a virus isolated yet? Yes, yes I also think so. They never, they never isolated the virus. So if you don't isolate the virus, you don't know what you're testing. So this entire idea of testing is, uh, is basically nonsense. You need, you need to isolate what you're testing. If I'm uh, going to go outside and detect cars and I don't know what a car is, then I don't know what my detector, if it's good or not. So if they don't have a virus, they don't know how to test what, it, what is actually being tested. 
it's just something. It just went to the database. It has been uh, constructed. You can imagine it's like a big puzzle. You break a puzzle up into pieces, maybe a 500 pieces, but you put not one puzzle in the in the in your bucket. You put uh, maybe a hundred puzzles in the bucket because it's full of uh, genetic material in any sample. And then they try to isolate one puzzle from this entire uh, bucket and then reconstruct it. But yeah, you don't know if this works. You need to isolate the virus. Otherwise, you don't know if your test works. And if your test doesn't work, then you don't know actually what's going on. So this entire idea can be something else. I'm not saying that the virus doesn't exist. It's just that they didn't isolate it, so they don't know what they're testing. But we're told... Sorry. just do one slide? Yep, please. If you've got slides to share there, Dr. Kamilinski, please go ahead. So this is just uh, a... Uh, something present on the internet, and it has been put up by some... Uh, Virusologist. At least the guy down there with uh, ears, uh, he gave an interview in 2020 to Russian TV, which demonstrated that, well, he is uh, a director of the uh, Institute of Virusology in Berlin, and they demonstrated that the virus does not transmit to the objects. So whatever disinfection you do in the street, it is naturally nonsense because there is no virus you can get from the dust on the street. So these guys here, they put up a fund of one and a half million euros for some virusology labs who could demonstrate that they have properly isolated the virus doing all the control experiments. And the money is still there. No one has claimed it, which probably is telling something. Or maybe it is also telling that the virusology labs are so rich that they don't need a million euros. That's my additional information. Yeah, thank you. And I know last week you were um, showing me a couple of slides as well where you were talking about different oh, infection I rates. Show, I can show some more because well, part of it is in the paper, part is not, but I can just put up the presentation. Yeah, please, that'd be great. So this is one of the telling things. So what has been happening? Basically, we are identifying the virus by tests. And if we suspect that something is wrong with our interpretation of pandemics, then probably something might be wrong with the test. <laughs> so these are the data from the World Health Organization. The component is called Net, they just are monitoring the flu. So what you see are peaks which appear in winter of the northern hemisphere because we have much more population and more cold in northern hemisphere. Then the red arrow points 
to where there is no peak in the season 2020-2021. So when I was in Novosibirsk, I had the chance of asking one uh, virologist, virologist, whatever, why, and his explanation was that the masks are working very good and they eliminated the flu. I will show that this is completely untrue because flu was not affected by masks in 1918 and uh, could not be affected today. So now, if we move further in time, we see that in this season the flu is back. Although the masks are still being used everywhere except Moscow, but the flu is still there. And uh, now also there is a new feature which never appeared before where the red arrow is pointing we have this peak separated in two peaks so i suspect that we may be observing covid misdiagnosed as flu a <laughs> because this second peak is in spring where COVID should be circulating by, by natural law, all coronaviruses appear in spring, they always have. And uh, this, to me, it just shows that the tests are very wrong. It is all mixed up. And now we also see it on the flu side. Before, we only saw it on the COVID side. Now it also appears on the flu side. So this is a reference, so anyone who wants to read the paper can uh, put, scan this uh, QR code and then look this paragraph which I have copied. It is on page 12 of the PDF file in the end of point 6. The authors do not comment it at all because the conclusion is obvious. There is no effect of masks. Although in the conclusions they say, okay, it is a difficult question and it should be studied further. Right. What is there to study? I would say nothing. And this is a definite proof with the immense statistical weight which shows that masks have no effect whatsoever on propagation of respiratory viruses. None. Whatever you do, you have the same amount of people infected. So why do we have to wear the masks? You tell me. Right. <laughs> so this is the logic of our explanation why the exosome could be in the picture of course it is hypothetical it could be something else but it has to be something else which has genetic material and ex exosomes have it and uh, then you get to all the conclusions
if your tests are wrong, then you have uh, all the wrong results for testing. You have mortality in the hospital by cross-contamination. And your vaccines, which are based on the same genetic material, are probably useless or even detrimental. And in fact, and we cite it in the paper, WHO itself has produced a warning which no one seems to notice, and which says that when there is no virus, you will still get false positive. So if there is no COVID at all, you still get false positive. And that was a result in some research paper, which WHO has transformed into this warning. You have the internet reference, and you can read it if you wish. So, so when uh, we conclude that PCR tests are not informative, so we look at mortality because general mortality is a fact. People have died, and then we can try to interpret why it happened. So these are some plots from the European site called Euromomo. So. In the first year of COVID here, we had a very strong and distinct peak in spring when it first appeared in Europe. In the second year, the spring peak is very small. That's where the error, the question mark is pointing, quite small. But still you have an increased mortality in what have always been rhinovirus season in autumn and in winter. So these peaks are higher than, say, in 2018, which is probably due to cross-contamination, wrong diagnostics, wrong treatment, because apparently they have been treating with antivirals when they should have been treated with antibiotics, because when you get to a hospital, there is a very high probability to get pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, and that is what should be treated, and not the virus, which is by, by that time is probably eliminated by the immune system. So if we look at the data in Eastern Europe, excess mortality, so this is percentage of mortality calculated relative to previous years, the before COVID period, 2015-2019 average. So, and this is some <clears throat> countries from Eastern Europe. In fact, we could include East Germany here, but on this side, East Germany is not separated from West Germany. Uh, we see that there's nothing happening in spring in Eastern Europe. Why? 
I wouldn't believe for a second that hygienic measures implemented in Poland would work better than implemented in Germany. Because Germans would do it properly, because they're Germans, and if it didn't work for them, it shouldn't have worked for the Polish. But apparently, there was no one dying in Poland or Romania or Greece who don't care about anything. They just uh, drink wine. So, the only explanation I have is that COVID is not at all appearing in all seasons indiscriminately. It is a seasonal virus, and apart from being a seasonal virus, it requires certain weather conditions to propagate. And these weather conditions were not present in Eastern Europe in that season, in the first season of COVID. So we don't see any deaths attributable to COVID in that season, but this rectangle shows the spring season, the spring of the next COVID season, and here we have significant mortality, like in Bulgaria or Poland, it gets into 80 or 70 percent. It is not as much as the West Europe had in the previous season, as I showed, but to me, it indicates that finally COVID got to East Europe in the second season. Whatever is here was mostly attributed to COVID, but in fact, it should be mortality caused by flu A, flu B, and Rina virus, which is because it is not the COVID season, it's not the season of uh, coronaviruses. And now we look at the similar picture for West Europe. So you see those large peaks in the first season, up to 100% excess deaths, so what we have here is United Kingdom, France, Italy, which were at the highest peaks, Germany not so high, it's like only 10%, and then uh, we look at the second season, also spring, and what do we see? We see much lower mortality rate. So I just ignore this because this is probably caused by flu A, flu B, and we are looking at spring once more, and we see that any mortality is probably a factor of four or five lower than what we had in the first season. As for United Kingdom, this may be the COVID peak for UK in the second season, like here because it has very different climate from the rest of West Europe, so it may have come in a different time. But still, it is like three times smaller than the one they had in the first season. So if we compare the evolution from the first to the second season, I would say that even without any 
vaccinations, because at that time there were no vaccines yet, even without vaccination, we have immunity accumulating, and the mortality is going down quite fast. So by my predictions, in this spring, we should have no excess mortality attributable to COVID, simply because the immunity is there with or without vaccines. It would be there also without any vaccines because it has been developing quite fast. So my prediction for this season is that COVID in West Europe would be basically gone because everyone who had a lack of immunity has acquired that immunity and the problem is solved. However, if you continue doing tests, you will be getting false positives all the time and false positives will cause lockdowns, masks, whatever, vaccinations, and this will continue ad infinitum. Thank you. Thanks for that, Sarah. Um, so look at the, the data there, Dr. Kulinski. Uh, my question is, if the PCR test isn't correctly identifying people who are sick with corona, uh, how can we rely on any of the data that they're showing us in regards to these peaks and troughs of mortality rates? Well, we can't. The only thing which we have for sure is this general mortality the data which hundred percent because it is not because it is not uh, attributing it to a specific virus. So this is just general mortality what we have got on this uh, picture, and then we can uh, try to deduce where did it come from. So we know for sure that this first season in spring of COVID. So I expect the, the second spring to be of COVID, and it is much smaller than that. So that's uh, what I'm doing. Of mm. course, you should check the hypothesis. And the check, it's quite simple to test it. You should do simultaneously tests for multiple viruses. And apparently, I think it was in Netherlands or in Britain, one of the test suppliers has offered the government to supply tests which would do simultaneously flu A, flu B, rhinovirus, and coronavirus for the same price, same price, but the government refused. Mm. Right? Why? I don't know. So, if you remember, when it all started, there were reports from China that they had uh, like 40 or 45 percent false negatives because the person had all the symptoms, but the test indicated a negative result. So, there are negative results, but this 
last August, I talked to a clinical doctor who is the clinical director of four hospitals, four private hospitals in Novosibirsk. And what he told me, they don't have any false negatives because if they get negative for coronavirus, they test for another four viruses. And if they got negative for that, they test for another 14 viruses. So in every case with a pneumonia, because you get hospitalized when it is a real problem, then you get the hospital. So in every case with a pneumonia, they could identify a virus. Okay? Every case. So they have no false negative. What I asked him to do is to also test for either viruses the corona patients who have corona test them for something else. And mm. that would be the test for our hypothesis. Like, if in every case, in every corona case, or in most corona cases, you also get some other virus, flu A, flu B, rhinovirus, whatever, I don't care, there are many of them, then probably there is no corona. Mm. Because it is much less probable to get two viruses at the same time than mm. to get just one virus. Okay, so there are relatively small number of people getting even one virus. And if you are so un unlucky that you got two, the number of such people should be very low. But if, on the contrary, Tests will demonstrate that this number is like half or more, which is not explainable by simple statistics. So, if at any time you have like much less than 1% of all population ill with a single respiratory virus, then to get people ill with two, you would probably have probability of 1 in 10,000. But if, in fact, instead of 1% of 1%, you get half of 1%, deal with two viruses or more, then probably your COVID is just a figment of imagination. Right. And it should be a figment of imagination by this time, at least in Europe, because in all probability, everyone is immune to it. And if they are immune, they can't get COVID. That's it. Problem solved. We don't need any tests at all. But to be sure, you should do tests for several viruses at the same time and try to identify as many viruses as you can. Once you do it, then you can do your conclusion. Why do you think there's so many inconsistencies with the information and the data that's being presented? They say that everything's scientific, but I kind of feel like a lot of what's been done over the pandemic hasn't really followed the scientific method. So 
what's going on? Because there's so many doctors and scientists looking at this. How can they all possibly be wrong? Well, wrong or not, that's not the point. The point is that if you do not try to be critical of yourself, then you can never find the right answer. Mm. And there is there is very little culture of uh, philosophy of science. What we put in our papers as part of the description of scientific method and things like that, we started doing it because when we look like at climate research, we saw that scientific methods had been systematically ignored because they are looking for proof of their ideas instead of looking for ways to disprove their ideas. You see? Hmm. Which is... So it is a fundamentally wrong approach. Yeah, it's, it's an anti-scientific approach. Yeah. It is anti-scientific. Um, Dr. Kulis- and with the wrong approach, you cannot arrive to correct results because you're not looking the right way. You're looking all the wrong way all the time. Yes, absolutely. Um, did you have any more slides that you wanted to go through there or... Well, I may want to show a couple more. Okay. So, these are the data on statistics in Alberta, which shows how did they transform excess death caused by a vaccine to vaccines being helpful. So what is shown on the plot, so statistics in Canada are done in a better way, so you have actually the length of the period from getting a jab to the time when you got ill with COVID. So if you look at this plot, you see that in the first two weeks, there is a large number of people getting ill, comparatively large. So this is for 1 million vaccinated. And if you integrate the curve, you probably had like 100,000 people. A significant proportion of people getting ill. So what they were counting officially, officially, these first two weeks, are counted as unvaccinated people. And the rest is counted as vaccinated people. So when they tell you that vaccines reduce the number of illnesses, it is based on this sort of data when extra illness caused by the vaccine, because it wasn't there, the background was very low, but after you got the jab, your probability of getting infected goes up. 
and apparently it is the same for all vaccines, both in the West and in Russia, who wanted to be independent and produce their own vaccines, because a Russian doctor, this is his name, told me that he recommends self-isolation for two months, which is about the same period presented here, 60 days. <laughs> so most of the illness caused by the vaccine happens within two months. And after that, you basically return to the baseline, which means that your vaccine is reducing the capacities of your immune system, and that reduction stays there for about two months. And this is completely contrary to what would you yeah. to what you would expect from a vaccine. And also if you look at the dynamics, it is completely different from a dynamics of a flu illness. So your flu is basically over in one week and after one week you get your full immunity. You would not catch the same flu one week after the first time you got the flu. Okay? So with flu it would be exactly opposite dynamics. It would be going down after the first week and staying there, below the baseline. For this thing, it is going up for about two weeks, and they stays above for two months. So it is something completely different from flu, and I would say that probably it has nothing to do with flu, with COVID. Nothing whatsoever, because it is completely different dynamics, and different dynamics, according to chemical kinetics, is a different process. And it is completely different, completely different dynamics, completely different outcomes. So you are not having an increase in immunity, you have an increase in immunity, and it lasts much longer than one week of a normal flu. Even if we assume that while you are ill with the flu, you are probably less, more susceptible to get some other illness. Probably you are. But I'm not. So, I think this is the all of the slides which I wanted to show. There are more data in the paper, but I don't think it should be repeated. Yeah, so with the vaccines, how is it possible that they can produce a vaccine if they've never isolated the virus? Because they wouldn't know what RNA to put into the vaccine, right? Well, they allegedly know because the Chinese guys published the RNA code in the database. After that, everyone was going to the database, taking the bytes and bits out of the database, and using it to build the vaccine. 
So basically, exosomes are physically very similar to viruses in that they have those spikes as well, and they are also able to enter cells, and they do it with an objective because they have to transmit some information to other components of the immune system, and those are also made of cells. So these exosomes are meant to enter some cells, so they also have a spike protein, which is somewhere there, probably also in the RNA. I don't know. Probably it is. So, in all the respect, you can only separate them immunologically. If you have built something which binds to these in a different way than it binds to that, and I even uh, suspect it's not possible because viruses are clever and are also built to enter the cells, so probably they're not so different from exosomes, even immunologically, if you try to catch them with something. But uh, that's, that's the way it is. So they use the database. <laughs> They use data from the database to build the to build the vaccines. Right. So it's a it's a computer generated sequence essentially. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was computer generated after they uh, did some culturing of biological samples on cell cultures, and then they computer generated the sequence. And after that, all the world was using it to produce vaccines. I know that you'll um, have to go soon because you're working today, but I just wanted to um, ask a couple more questions. So just another two questions. Do you have time? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so um, one, one of my questions is, do you think that science is going to be able to write itself? Because it seems that it's gone off the rails recently. Do you think that science is going to be able to redeem itself here? Mm, not very probable, no. Because the mainstream would be defending their positions like to death. Because uh, like publishing a paper like this one would be, well, I'm not saying end of career, but a severe blow to the journal to all the researchers who have published COVID papers in the journal and all over the world, because somehow the mainstream journal has admitted a paper which basically zeroes all the previous research. And that is not something you would do to yourself. Okay. So, my prediction that we shall have more of the same for many years to come. Right. And, and it's not like that people don't want this information. Because, um, Dr. Woodcock, before we started speaking today, you were talking to me about how many people have been downloading this paper from ResearchGate. And you were saying about how your previous work, how many downloads you would usually get and how many downloads you've had from this paper. So did you want to talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, the, the question of will the, 
we, we live in, in a world now that, uh, where so-called pseudoscience is basically an industry. And the pseudoscientists are people who are not really interested in scientific truth. They're interested in money, career mileage, job opportunity. And over the last few decades, the pseudoscientists have been in the ascendancy, in the editorship of journals, in the organization of conferences, organizations like the International Panel on Climate Change, the World Health Organization. Uh, pseudoscience is a massive, massive industry, and they're in the ascendancy. And in some areas like, like, like this and also like global warming, anybody that doesn't agree with the consensus is, base, is basically treated as, uh, they, they have derogatory words, a denier, a skeptic. You don't believe in the religion. And personally, I don't think there's any, any, any way that the general trend can be reversed. In a free world, in a free society, in free countries, uh, the alternative would be to have some, some kind of repressive laws against pseudoscience, and of course we can't do that. And so, fortunately, there are people like Igor <laughs> and people like myself who are classed as eccentrics who seek nothing but the truth. And Igor, that, his summary was absolutely superb. The scale, the scale of the involvement is shocking and staggering. Of, on the on the economic communities, the lockdown, the effects of countless other deaths because of the redirection of medical facilities, the, the the scale is staggering and shocking of the damage caused by the pseudo scientists in the World Health Organization. What more can I say? You know. It, Ego went into all the details superbly, and, and it's absolutely true. There is nothing that he said that any honest, basic scientist like me or yourself, who I don't understand the details, but there's nothing that I could disagree with. And that, that's why we, we work together in these different areas to try to get the truth out. Um, yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad that you've all collaborated to... Um, put that paper together. And I was also wondering, Dr. Woodcock, if you could just um, touch a little bit about on about how many people have downloaded this paper, because it's a bit unusual to get this sort of um, attention, isn't it? It's incredibly unusual. The average, my main research work is actually in, in physics of phase transitions and critical phenomena. And I try to work at the front end. And I've published important papers recently. And the average number of downloads from the research community of the average paper is something like, it's less than 10 a week. And so over my whole career, over 50 years, all my papers are published on ResearchGate, and I've been on about six years, and the total number of downloads for 150 papers over the last six years was around about 25,000. This paper... This paper is attracting, and they, I look, you can look at the details, they're nearly all from the medical profession, uh, and from countries all over the world. There's a, a predominance in, in Germany and the United States, but every, I think every country in the world, and uh, even a lot from Russia, even some from the Ukraine, would you believe? 
<laughs> and, uh, and so the scale, the scale of the interest by the medical profession in this paper is 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 almost beyond belief. So my total number, my total number in just one week, this last week is it's just gone past a hundred thousand. Yeah. Wow. And wow. that, that's more than, more than all my papers, research papers in my entire career by the whole world, as was, is, is one quarter of that. And this is over a period of six or seven years since we started on ResearchGate. It's, it's unbelievable. But it, 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 vindicates, it vindicates the skepticism by many, many people in the medical profession who don't really understand the science. Or not even in the medical like, like myself, who, who, who don't understand the details of the science that ego outlined. It's it's to me it's unprecedented. <laughs> so we have never seen anything like this before. I don't know. I would need to. We get the we get the feedback from ResearchGate, and it says congratulations, Leslie. Uh, last week you got top stats. We got the highest in Portugal. Wow. But that's not, that may be not saying very much. So we don't know whether this is a this often happens for a research paper to go viral. Uh, I, we don't know. I maybe we could contact ResearchGate and ask them how unusual it is. Mm. I, I honestly can't answer that question. Well, apparently mm. there were but, some discussions on Facebook and things like that. So people are looking, reading, informing each other. So it's going by word of mouth I guess. yeah and i think people want this information i a lot of people understand that there's something not right going on and they're oh, looking because it is not right when it, like if they tell you that uh, being previously ill does not make you immune that is complete nonsense it can't happen so my interpretation of that is that your tests, which test for immunity, are also wrong. Well, if you can't properly test for the illness, how can you test for immunity? No way. So they're testing for some antibodies. If they're testing for antibodies, they're probably testing for antibodies to exosomes. And those should not exist at all because your immune system should not attack your own exosomes. Yeah, and that very well... So you are, you are creating anti-immunity. Hmm. And that's why your probability of getting ill is increasing after the, after the vaccine. Yeah, makes sense. Totally understand what you're saying there. So my, my last question, and, and thank you for all the thorough answers that you've been, both of you gentlemen have been giving uh, this evening. I really appreciate it. Uh, my final question is, what do you see a way out of this? And if so, what do you think that way out is? Well, yeah, yeah can I say, okay, go. Just the easiest way out, is to do like what Chinese have been doing, saying we have no illness, so we don't need tests. And if we don't do tests, then we don't get the pandemics. That's, that's it, problem solved. But of course, it depends on the political will. 
if they want that thing to continue, it will continue, because if they continue testing, then we shall have continuing pandemic every flu season. Yes, absolutely. And a false pandemic at that. Of course. Because there would be no COVID flu by that time. It is weeded out by immunity. Because contrary to flu A or flu B, because flu A is like a generic name for hundreds of significantly different viruses. Significantly means the immunity against one does not stop from getting ill with another. Okay? But coronaviruses, those that do circulate, they don't have very large uh, potential for change because probably they are not so numerous, but in fact, we did not see significant mortality in spring in many years before corona appeared. So I would not expect this one to be much different from the other one. But on the other hand, if you have like a hundred variants of flu A, then one of them can with reasonable probability come up with a reasonable spike in mortality every year in spite of all the immunity which people have been accumulating over years, you get some younger people who didn't who don't have it, you have some people whose immunity has like reduced for some reason, you get a bit different variant of those older viruses, and then some people are getting ill. But that is like a family of a hundred something viruses. At one time they were saying 42 or 46, now they're saying 100 and something. I'm not counting. But of course, the total variability in that family is much larger than for a, a single virus. So that's why I would not expect like COVID changing every three months to something different. Why? Because all the changes are in effect happening in ourselves. It is the coping errors in ourselves that generate the new variants. And you cannot expect these variants to be generated at significantly different rates for different viruses. Okay? So if you have just one variant dominant variant of COVID, it is one, and you have like a hundred variants of flu A. So already that gives flu A a like a factor of hundred in terms of the summary evolution rate. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Daniel, as you say, Daniel? Yes, Dr. Wilcox. Yeah, I'll just say, we should thank you and not the other way around. You were smart enough to spot that this is not pseudoscience, this is not junk science. <laughs> and if it hadn't been for you, it may not even have gone viral. 
So, you know, you're doing a great job. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh. And, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, great to go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's um, just so nice that there are men like yourselves willing to put the truth or, or what you perceive to be the truth currently um, into the mainstream and to try and get this information published. So I hope you continue with this and I, I hope you try to publish um, this information in another journal because I know that I think you said the Lancet isn't going to take it and they said that maybe no other journals are going to take it, but hopefully there are is a journal out there that is um, still true to the scientific method and they do want to get to the truth and I, I hope they publish that for you. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. um, yeah. Any any final yeah, thoughts? Hmm? Any any final thoughts before we end the session today? Or uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't really know. know. No, no, no worries. Yeah. We, we, we do another back. one on climate change. I'd love yeah. that actually. That'd we be great. One on climate, yeah. Later. Any, yeah. I, actually, the good news is it, my paper was just accepted and published in Entropy. The thermodynamics journal. Fantastic. It's accepted. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. You'll have to share that with me because I'll be interested to read. Well, yeah. This is an area where people don't agree, and even Ego and myself, we're still debating the science, and we disagree on some small small topics. So Ego didn't want his name on my paper on that. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, we still we get to the truth eventually. That's yeah. correct. Okay. Thank you so much, gentlemen. I really appreciate oh, you, you so taking much. the time. And uh, I will put a link to your paper in the show notes of the episode. And um, yeah, we'll see if we can get more people downloading your good work. Obrigado. Obrigado. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. The ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Until next time.